Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. All right, back with Tim and Brandon with Mike Up with Cairo Up. We have a good podcast that's coming up, and I mean just good because I'm the great part, he's the good part, uh, but we're going to cover a lot of good information. It's the yin and the yang. <laughs> um, you know, today's podcast is going to go over one specific condition. It's going to be patellofemoral pain syndrome, but we are going to get into a lot of the manipulation, a lot of the strengthening that does go up and downstream for the uh, for the knee. We're going to cover that today. We're also going to go over some new stuff that you're going to find within Cairo Up, a new evaluation, some new infographics, and some fun little Easter eggs within Cairo Up that hopefully you can find. And then most importantly, how we're going to take the research that's coming out just now when it comes to patellofemoral pain syndrome, and we're going to give it to you for you to use in your office. Because let's be honest, we're looking for new stuff with the, uh, the end of the year coming up. We've got a little bit of dip. I shouldn't say dip. I should say chaos in the office around the holidays. You guys have it. I've got it. We're all practicing chiropractors. Uh, you're going to have people coming home from college. You're going to have Sally that's just in to see her her, her friends for uh, you know Christmas. We're going to have those people that are in our office, and it's how we manage those people. So let's cover that first. So that's a, that's kind of the, 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 the trend right now in December, uh, diving into the new year, is how do you manage those things? And I'm just going to give you what I do, um, is I give them what they're asking for. Meaning when I have someone coming in with a condition and they have lumbar spine you know, stenosis and I'm gonna see them three times, how deep do I need to dive into that patient? I need to give them some simple tools to get them through the holidays, uh, the ways to stand, ways to sit, and a couple stretches to help get them through the holidays with less pain. I probably don't need to set up a treatment plan for the next 12 visits uh, to help uh, you know get through this condition. Uh, just meet their goals, meet them fast, and get them on their way. Yeah, awesome. And not just goals for the patient, that December is a great time to make sure that you have the goals for the, the staff and for your team as well that going into a game, you don't want to have the game plan once the game starts in January. You'd prefer to have it up and running. So making sure that you've set goals, make sure that the goals make your, your team proud, that make you proud if your patient saw those. Make goals related to clinical outcomes and patient satisfaction. And once you have those, then you can get your team moving in the right direction once January hits. Speaking of moving in the right direction, what about your prices? You know, that's something that we always have um, try to keep our prices low, make it affordable for ourselves, but don't be afraid to raise your prices. That's one of the things that, you know, when your prices are stagnant over the last 10 years is something or an opportunity to um, increase that bottom line. And keeping in mind that that's, you know, within the uh, the normalcy of today. I can't even go to Chipotle with, uh, today without getting a 3% surcharge for something or whatever they call it. 3%. <laughs> uh, let's dive into the knee, though. The, the case of the month, the, the area we're going to focus on today is going to be patellofemoral pain syndrome. And this is one that's near and dear to my heart because I had it and ignored it all the way through high school until I finally ruptured it. And I can tell you right now, that's not a place that I want to put my uh, my patients. 
Uh, this is something that I was just told I had runner's knee. You know, it's popular. It's 25% of the adult population have it. And it's just a little bit of a muscle imbalance. You're going to grow through it. Um, and unfortunately, um, some people don't grow out of it. Um, they continue to damage that tissue over and over again. And then unfortunately, that tissue becomes so weak that it, it can rupture. It turns into beef jerky. So we want to make sure that we're able to recognize these things. And not only can we recognize them, but you can actually recognize this on imaging. There was a, a paper that came out that talked about uh, disorganized tissue um, in, in the asymptomatic tendons of patellofemoral pain syndrome in 25% of runners. This is telling us we have a failed healing response. Unfortunately, this person, whether it's you, your patient, or someone else, uh, is, is using that tendon over and over again. They're not getting enough rest, and it's leading to weaker tissue that has a, a reduced capacity and unable to do work. Right, really, it's part of a whole spectrum that somebody has a misaligned patella that they got a lateral tracking disorder, and eventually that's going to cause inflammation of the cartilage, which then causes irritation and chipping of the cartilage, which is chondromalacia, and then that eventually turns to degeneration of that cartilage or osteoarthritis. So this is this is a predictable spectrum of issues. And in that process, as, as you had suffered in high school, there's a lot of other dysfunction that's happening. There's stress that's placed on the quadriceps tendon, stress that's placed on the patellar tendon, stress that's placed on the tibial tuberosity. Our young patients with Osgood-Schlatter's disease, those who have coexistent patellofemoral pain syndrome have a higher incidence of Osgood-Schlatter's because it's a biomechanical stress that's producing some change that the body doesn't appreciate. And it's mostly because of what we do to it, right? You know, it's not the patellofemoral uh, pain syndrome fairy that came down and gave it to me or your patients. It are the, it's the things that we do to ourselves on a regular basis, whether it is repetitive stress, which this diagnosis would uh, obviously fit into, but also those postural stresses that people have. It's amazing the amount of stress that we put on our own bodies that a third to a half of your per your body weight goes through that knee upon just walking and, and running. That if you want to squat, you know, if you want to do a, a true parallel squat, you're putting 20 times your body weight from your patella going into the, those uh, femoral condyles. Not only that, but those condyles, that bony contact, shrinks in size as you go through more knee flexion. So not only is it more weight, but it's going through less surface area. So there is going to be the potential for injury. And the real question is, what's the, the weakest link? Well, there's my case. I'm not skeletally mature. That was, well, not mature in many aspects, I guess, <laughs> now that I say that out loud. Uh, but at that time, my tendons were probably the weakest part. If I was a little bit younger, it could have been a growth plate. If I'm a little bit older, it could be the cartilage. You know, it depends on the person. Uh, but something to consider that weak, uh, weak tissue always goes out first. Yeah, and, and a lot of times that tissue, we look at the knee because that's where the symptoms are. But the orientation of that patella is really determined by what's happening up and down chain. That if somebody has hip abductor weakness, it's allowing their knees to come into valgosity or their knees start to, to come closer together which takes the patella laterally. And if somebody has fallen arches of the foot or hyperpronation, pes planus, now we're taking that patella medially the same way that as your arches drop down, if you just stand up now on your own and let your arches drop down, you see what happens to the medial aspect of your knee. They come together, the lateral aspect of the knee goes, or the knee goes laterally, and that's gonna rub that lateral uh, patellar facet up against the lateral femoral condyle, and it doesn't like that arrangement. One of my favorite blogs, which I will fully admit had very low ratings, was what is um, knee dorsiflexion? 
Um, you know, and I know, that's not a real thing. However, there is a big linkage between ankle dorsiflexion and patellofemoral pain problems. So it was meant to spark some interest in the blog. It did not. It was a, a big failure like most of mine. Um, however, I do think that's a potential player for us as chiropractors. I love hearing joint cavitation. I, mean, I get more out of it than my patients half the time. And one You know, of, just hearing that knee dorsiflexion, it almost tears me away from this podcast to want to go check it out. <laughs> I, I don't know how I'm still sitting here. Um, it actually was a really good blog. It took a lot of thought. Um, it didn't go over quite as well. Um, hmm. However, uh, one of the things that I do enjoy doing uh, with my knee patients is looking at the feet. And uh, you see this characteristic compensation that happens that that patient is unable to get dorsiflexion from their, their ankle. Now, it could be to the muscular component. Uh, it could be uh, going into the, the gastroconsoleus. However, the, the osseous part of that is looking at that ankle mortis joint. When you can start to force some motion, long axis traction out of the ankle mortis joint, and also get some uh, midfoot pronation out of that person, it's going to do um, a great uh, service to that knee, helping that person get into dorsiflexion. Something I would consider. The other part about the foot is uh, pronation. And people look at this as this, this awful thing as far as having pronation, but you need pronation. That's how you dissipate force. Now, one thing that I would consider as a, um, as a provider is not just driving all my patients into an orthotic. The one thing that I learned from Michaud and uh, what were those called, those varus wedges, um, I love those things. They're little peel and stick things that uh, you can put right in your patient's shoes. And what they do is they slow down pronation. So they're still gonna go through the same amount of pronation. That amount of force is crazy. However, they're gonna slow down that rate of pronation and significantly help their patients. I forgot the cost on that, but but they were like 12 bucks, 15 bucks. And the other application for that is I put those in um, cleats. Um, a lot of times that you have a soccer um, or a, a track runner um, and those patients can't get a, uh, a, a arch support into the, uh, the cleat or the shoe, um, something that can significantly help your patients. Yeah, there was a good study just a couple of months ago back in October from JOSPT and they looked at 65 randomized controlled clinical trials and determine what really works. So this this is um, good information as to what helps patients with patellofemoral pain syndrome and the whole spectrum through chondromalacia and osteoarthritis. And they found that number one, hip and knee strengthening are the top tools. That if we can change the muscles, the way that the hip and knee line up, because we have better frontal plane alignment, that's a great te treatment technique. What you're talking about is things down at the foot. That was another thing that was shown to be effective that orthotics and in including the medial wedges would be something that would be helpful. And finally, lower quadrant manual therapy, the things that you and I do on a regular basis, patellar mobilization, working out the hamstrings, quadriceps, gastroc, soleus, those muscles that play a role closer to the knee than the hip. And then the last thing was perineural dextrose injections, which is basically injecting the nerves around the knee to kind of deaden things. I'm not sure how long, how long that's going to last, but we do know that patients who strengthen their hip and get orthotics or at least functional orthotics in the in the fashion of strengthening the muscles to help support that arch 
those patients have long-term results, that our patients who have hip abductor weakness and allowing their knees to come together, we can do anything we want to that knee. We can rub the knee. We can mobilize the knee. We can strengthen the the, uh, vastus medialis to try to pull that knee medially. But it doesn't matter until we have frontal plane alignment, until you have that femur lining back up with the tibia and the patella falls in that same string of, of line, it doesn't matter what you do to the knee. So our focus, as this article showed, really has to be at the hip and the foot. I'm going to jump ahead in our, our little outline here. Um, and that is probably the most important part of this conversation is how do we recognize this? Because you and I and the people listening to the podcast can um, listen to our patients and we can poke on tissue. But how can we really say this person needs strengthening this person needs stretching, this person needs a psychologist. Um, you know, then we have those patients. Um, I love three tests for this. And the first one I like, the next two I love. The one that I like is a single leg stance, just standing on one foot and waiting, which is what I don't love about this test, to see if you see any kind of um, you know, lagging of the hip to the outside as far as an uncompensated or compensated Schnellenberg. Now, the two tests that I love are the single leg squat. And now having that same person stand on one foot and squat down and then seeing what happens to their knee. So not only will they reproduce their chief complaint, which is pain at the um, patella or the patella tendon, but it's going to be, um, they're going to show their compensation. You're going to see that knee dive down into valgosity. You're going to see that hip jut out. You're going to see that femur roll in, uh, in, in internal spin. You're going to see their arms wavering everywhere because they probably have poor balance. And you're going to see them overpronate for those patients that have that compensation. So we're going to see their compensation patterns. We're going to see why that patella uh, is, is maybe not lined up in that groove. And then if you really want to take an isolated approach, and we can do this through all muscles, but in this case, looking at the glute med, glute max, use the hip lag sign. The hip lag sign is having the patient on their side. You're going to bring them down into a little bit of abduction, a little bit of extension, and have them hold that position. Well, they can't do it if they have weakness in those internal rotators. And unfortunately, um, they have that weakness is going to um, manifest as pain. If you want to see any of those tests, that's obviously going to be in Cairo up. Uh, we're going to take a, a detailed approach at each one of those orthopedic tests and then tell you exactly what to do with it. Yeah, in fact, we have a 15 minutes to clinical excellence video on identifying hip abductor weakness. It kind of goes through all those things. It's so much easier to learn when you can see it happening. So you'll get to see the tests that are used in that process and how to identify it. I would say that there's probably not any functional deficit that has greater impact on our patients than hip abductor weakness, maybe scapular dyskinesis, maybe upper cross syndrome, but hip abductor weakness is right there, that all of those lower chain problems have some relationship to that uncontrolled adduction and the internal rotation that's happening because the hip abductors are weak. So check that out if you go to the protocol for hip abductor weakness. Up in the top right corner, you'll see a little video icon and you'll get a 15 minute video of how to never uh, miss that again and some of the tools that you can teach your patients to correct that long term. So how can we change running mechanics or jumping mechanics to affect these people's problems? And this is something that is critical because you have a, a patient or an athlete that wants to continue doing whatever it is they were doing. We want to make sure we can get them back into whatever that, um, that sport or activity or whatever it is they want to do. So 
specifically with runners, what are two things you can do starting today with your patients to help them get through this process and hopefully prevent it from happening again. But first, a word from our sponsor, which just happens to be us. Attention all chiropractors. Hey, are you ready to kick off the new year with a bang? Cairo Up wants to help you meet your goals, and we are very excited to announce our new year special. So for a limited time, when you sign up for a new subscription, you'll get a monthly savings of 25% that lasts for 12 full months. That means you'll get a discounted rate for all of 2023. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to make this your clinic's best year ever. Sign up now and take advantage of our new year special. You can check it all out at chiroup.com pricing. Use referral code NYS2023. Offer good for a limited time on new subscriptions only. All right, so coming back, what are the two things that you can do for your patients who have patellofemoral pain syndrome or the whole spectrum up through osteoarthritis of the knee to help them out? And I know one of the things that you might talk about is exercise. Um, and strengthening the muscles of the hip itself. I had a patient who, who told me the other day that they had the weakest legs ever and what, did they, what should they do to start exercising? And, and I told him that lunges would be a big step forward. I shouldn't even give it justice and laugh at that joke, but that was good. I like it. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> um, I was just reading the script. Uh, the script that you put together. For those of you who have never heard this podcast before, I write the I write the script about three weeks in advance, and I give it to Tim um, in about an hour. So you have an hour to prepare, and I have three weeks, so it works out quite well. Um, you know, my runners that I'll I'll see with runners knee, the one thing they want to do again is to run. So the thing with runners is that you have to change a couple things if that. Um, I'll take a, a patient that's gone to a, a running lab and they have a checklist of 17 things to do and different shoes to buy and their arm swings should do this and their tongue should be pointed this way and they need to wear this special hat. Well, that doesn't work very well. Um, but I will give you the two strategies that I use that seem to work well. And then, of course, we'll dive into the rehab. One, a shorter stride. Then if you can take a shorter stride, it decreases ground reactive forces and it takes a lot less stress going up the chain. So that's one thing that everybody can incorporate right off the bat. The second takes a little bit of training and that's because the way you run is a habit. So what I'm gonna have my patients do is to walk or run with a wider stance that most of our patients uh, run or walk with a crossover gait where they can almost walk on a balance beam. If you put them on the side of the road, they could probably hit the, the line on the side of the road as they're wa or walking or running. But walking or running with a wider stance will actually separate their feet at the stance phase and it'll keep their foot underneath their knee, underneath their hip. Now this does require a lot more force generation at the hip and it will not only be a um, you know, to take away their compensation, but also strengthen those muscles, they're probably not going to be able to run or walk what they used to. So I'm going to decrease their uh, their duration of that exercise. However, this is something that will significantly take away their compensations. And in this case, take away that abnormal stress at patella uh, femoral joint and also that patella tendon. Yeah, and a lot of research to support those two tips, that, that having that patient take a little shorter stride and making sure that they're keeping their, their stride wide enough 
that they're not stretching that hip abductor with every step they take, which is stretch muscle, over time is going to become weaker. You can uh, deliver that information to your patients if you go into the Cairo Up Forms library. We have an infographic on running mechanics, and the running mechanics talks about all the things that the patient should be doing to help them keep themselves healthy. There's another good running uh, infographic, and that one's called Healthy Running, and it talks about the clothes that you wear and the shoes that you choose and all sorts of other things, but the mechanics one would deal with what we're talking about today, helping that patient stay away from patellofemoral pain syndrome. All right. I didn't tell you this was going to happen, Tim, but I'm going to put you on the spot. This is a, this is a fun one. So a patient comes in with knee pain. Let's say they have osteoarthritis or knee and patellofemoral pain syndrome. So they can't really weight bear on their knee. However, we need to still strengthen their hips. What are your go-to exercises? Yeah, fortunately, we're, we're lucky there that uh, the research tells us that there's a number of exercises that are really potent for strengthening somebody's gluteus medius and their hips, which is really the key to solving this problem. And a lot of those involve the clam exercises. So the clam exercises, they're lying on their side, and there's four different clam uh, progressions. The first one is that they can just keep their ankles together and spread their knees. And once they get good at that, put a, put a band around their knees to provide some resistance. And as they advance, then they can they move into the advanced clam, which is spreading their ankle and their knees about six or eight inches, and then solely rotating the femur, internal and external, to make their foot go up and down. And if you've not tried that exercise, that's the number three most potent exercise for somebody with hip abductor weakness. If you've not tried it and wonder where your gluteus medius is, you won't need to wonder the next day because you're going to feel where your gluteus medius is. That is a potent exercise. And it really doesn't matter if you have some hip issues, if you have some knee issues, you're able to do those. So I love the clam exercises for those patients who, who might be challenged and even those who, who aren't challenged because they're so potent. I guess I can put you on the spot again because um, it's kind of fun to do. Um, so if you do have weakness in the hips, what are the other hip abductors that pay the price for that? What are the hip abductors that unfortunately now um, pay the price for that weakness and the, the compensations? And what are the diagnoses we see from that? Boy, that is fun. Um, is it the Anconius? Uh, <laughs> Where is that? <laughs> so the... Uh, uh, I would say that uh, unfortunately, if you're, you know, 70% of your frontal plane alignment uh, comes from your gluteus medius, the other 30% comes from a couple of muscles that attach onto the iliotibial band, the tensor fascia lata and the gluteus maximus. If the gluteus medius isn't doing its job, the tensor fascia lata and the gluteus maximus have to work too hard. They tend to pull on that iliotibial band, which causes all kind of, kinds of problems, compression over the greater trochanter, and compression down uh, at the fat pad on the distal part of the tibia, creating a, a uh, iliotibial band syndrome. So those patients will have knee pain on the outside as well. They'll have pain over their greater trochanter. They'll have trigger points in their tensor fascia lata. And those are things we need to deal with. Yes, we can stretch out the tensor fascia lata. By the way, we can't stretch the iliotibial band. It has the tensile flexibility of steel. Not that sort of steel. That's kind of rubbery, but steel. And, and you might get 0.02% overall stretch of an iliotibial band. So using a foam roller on it and stretching out the iliotibial band just doesn't work. Research says that it can help stretch out the, the springs at the top of the band, being the gluteus maximus and the tensor fascia lata, but it's not going to do much for the band. So teaching our patients how to, how to stretch the tensor fascia lata, but more importantly, strengthen the gluteus medius through the clam exercises, the advanced clam, 
And then especially once they get up, if we're talking about runners and athletes who have some physical ability, we want to get them into a side plank with abduction, which, which they're going to go into a side plank position, and they're going to lift their leg. And that's the, the most potent exercise to strengthen the gluteus medius. The challenge there is that those patients probably are dysfunctional, that they've learned all sorts of bad patterns. And, and having them try that exercise without trying it well and doing it well is just teaching them to have stronger bad mechanics. We need to make sure that that patient knows how to do that exercise, that first they can do a side bridge, and then they can plank, they can hold in that position, and then they can do the side plank with abduction. So teaching that patient, taking them from the first step to the second, meeting them wherever they are, and taking them where they need to go. That's great advice. One of the things that we hear at Cairo Up is there's a better rehab program. There's a better exercise for this or that. And they provide that information to us. And one, we video, we put it in Cairo Up. But also, the one thing that I think is missed is how to relay that information to your patients. Because it could be an exercise, but it requires them to purchase a piece of equipment. It has the potential to injure them for some other reason. Uh, that what Tim just brought up was the, the side plank with abduction. Go ahead and look at that video today. And why don't you go ahead and do that today? It is not easy. Um, and, and nor would it be easy for your patients. But you can build a patient into that. And how many of your patients, when you're done with them, say, what's next? What can I continue to do that's going to help me in the future? This is one of those great exercises. But build your patients into that program. Don't just jump off with, well, you do these seven exercises. These are the best ones for you. Make sure it's realistic. Make sure there's a video attached to it. Make sure there's a voice interpretation of what they should be doing. And then follow with them, up with them and make sure they're doing it appropriately. Um, so let's dive into the uh, kind of the, the new stuff in Cairo Up because we did some videos. Um, and I, I have to say that one of my evaluations is actually an evaluation. <laughs> and that's when you uh, push on the back part of the shoulder for your patients with posterior instability. Um, and their shoulder pain goes away. And you have those patients too. Well, Doc, if I just push right here, I can walk better. Uh, this is the same thing. It's called a thumb test. And what we know is those patients with posterior instability, that when you can support that teres minor infraspinatus back there and support the posterior glenohumeral capsule, now they can miraculously now pick up their arm into forward flexion. Um, and if that's that that's positive, then we're looking at uh, a posterior instability of the shoulder. One of our newer protocols, that's probably the last year or two, um, that, that protocol, when I gave it to Tim, and I, I do the research behind it, meaning I, I pull the research articles, Tim's actually the one that has to put it together into some kind of legible, readable format. And uh, he did not say nice words to me after he saw that research review. And it was a lot. Um, and it turned into a great protocol. If you haven't read that one uh, and you want to learn anything about the shoulder, that's where to start with our patients that had uh, pain for, for a long period of time. Yeah, I love, love that protocol. Um, as far as my favorite new stuff in Cairo Up, we have a pregnancy exercise infographic. So we know that uh, patients who exercise during pregnancy typically have better pregnancies and healthier fetuses. There's no damage to be done. Uh, of course, they need to check with, with their healthcare provider to make sure that that's okay. Uh, but we've put together the evidence-based guidelines for what's appropriate for exercise during pregnancy. So if you haven't seen that, check out the forms library and look at the uh, patient infographics 
there's one more added to it and we're, we're up to 40 or, or so infographics now, which is helpful for you to deliver that information to your patients. Um, so I'm excited for the next podcast. I want to give a little bit of an intro into that podcast because it's one of the <laughs> I questions. I can't wait to hear. I don't think Tim's even seen it yet. So that'd be fun to, uh, to, to hash out next month. Um, however, it's about tissue healing and it seems so simple to you and I, but it's not to your patient. Then when a patient comes in to see you with impingement syndrome of the shoulder or plantar fasciitis, or they've broken their fibula, we should have the information to tell them how long it's going to take to get them out of pain. It's not a business model. It's not what's most comfortable to your scheduling platform. It's dependent on what tissue was injured. So we have to look at that t tissue that's injured and say, okay, you have tendonitis. It's going to be between three and seven weeks. You have a simple sprain, uh, a typical sp uh, strain of a muscle. It's going to be a couple days. We should be able to not nail, but we should be pretty close um, at, 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 at giving someone an accurate prognosis based on their diagnosis. Uh, so that's what that um, that podcast is going to be about. It's one of my favorite things to do, and it's a it's a guessing game at the very beginning. However, once you've been in practice for a couple of years, you start to notice that patient. You say, okay, this is going to be a rotator cuff syndrome. We have to strengthen this muscle. It's going to be four weeks before they're 75% better, another four weeks before they're doing their at-home stuff, and then we're 100% better. And you'll refine those skills as you go through practice. But it's one of my favorite things to do. And then we're also going to go into a condition called friction radiculitis. What is that? And exactly how does it affect you and your patients? I hope this podcast has been good. Once again, if you have any questions or concerns, please email us. Uh, anything that's very complex, Tim at Chirop.com. If you have a home run question that's very easy to answer, Brandon at Chirop.com. And we'd be happy to answer those on the air. And once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.